This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jart, filling in today for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Hello. And Rufaro Manyepa. Hello. And Josh Taylor. Hello. And from our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Well, Russia's war against Ukraine continues to rage on. We are now on day 283 of Russia's supposedly three-day war. And this week, some really disturbing news broke about Russia systematically stealing one of Ukraine's main exports and selling it to other nations, partly so that Russia can keep on funding the war against the very nation that is being robbed. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go to Rafaro Manyepa. Yes, this is a very fascinating story. The Wall Street Journal came out with this just yesterday. And uh, it's a report about how they found vessels linked to Russia's largest grain trader shipping thousands of tons of stolen Ukrainian grain over to global buyers. All of the ships that are that are being used aren't linked directly to the Russian government, but they're owned by the person who owns the largest uh, grain trader in Russia. And the system that they've been using is is really interesting. Um, so th- there have been reports since about June about how Russia has been seizing and stealing grain uh, belonging to Ukrainian farmers in places like uh, Zaporizhia, for example. And nobody really knew what was happening with that grain. But it's 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 now clear that the system basically worked like this. You have the the Russians in Ukraine stealing the grain, they would then transport the grain all the way to Russian-occupied Crimea, and that there has direct access to the Black Sea. Once it arrives at the ports that are in Crimea, it would be loaded up onto these small vessels that can't really be, be, be tracked to anyone. And they would smuggle them from those vessels, they'd go out to sea, and then once they're out at sea, they get transferred over onto these larger cargo ships. Now, having done that, nobody knows where the grain is coming from. If if they had been sold on smaller vessels, maybe they'd say, oh, you're stealing this from Ukraine. We know where this is coming from. But by doing this, by smuggling it onto these larger vessels now, all these people, they're able to take the grain and send it out to global buyers and actually be able to finance the war against the people they're fighting, like you just said. Yeah. Well, this is... It's- just an appalling story, you know, thousands of tons of Ukraine's economic lifeblood being pilfered, as you said, mm-hmm. very shrewdly by uh, by Russia and sold in large part so that they can keep on paying soldiers to destroy Ukraine. Just uh, really sobering to learn about this injustice. Um, could you walk us through a little bit of the history of Russia's relationship with Ukraine, especially during the Soviet era, to give this some historic context? Right. and 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 that's the key to it. People don't realize just how important uh, the Ukraine has been as the 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 breadbasket of the USSR it was really important it's 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 a really uh, uh, fruitful and prosperous land for for agricultural production a lot more than than people realize just um, today for example last year Ukraine was responsible for 10% of the world's wheat exports 
14% of the world's corn exports and about 50% of the world's sunflower oil. That's just one country being responsible for that much. When it was under the USSR, you can imagine just how important it was for the USSR by providing that much. And right now with with Russia having been uh, smuggling all this grain for the last year, um, you can just see the numbers. I think through uh, the port in Crimea, Sevastopol, about 36,000 tons of grain were shipped out last year. But with Russia conducting these clandestine operations this year, it's been up to about 900,000 tons of grain that they've shipped out of there that the Russians have been benefiting from. So you can see them trying to revive that system that they had during uh, the era of the USSR today because it was so profitable for Russia back then, and it surely can be today as well. Yeah, some really uh, stunning figures there showing just what a breadbasket Ukraine really is. Um, could you place this in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners? Well, that that very you know idea of Ukraine being so beneficial to Russia uh, is what Mr. Gerald Flurry, our editor-in-chief, brought out um, over a decade ago. In 2008, he wrote in an article, this was after Russia attacked Georgia, he said, Russia's attack on Georgia in August marks the beginning of a dangerous new era in history. This was the first military strike of a rising Asian power, and there will be more. And Mr. Flurry went on to say after that, he said, will the Georgia strikes actually spark European unification? Will a crisis occur over Ukraine? That area is the breadbasket of Russia, and surely it is willing to wage war over that as well. Mr. Flurry said this in 2008, pointing to the whole idea of Ukraine being the breadbasket of Russia. And we see now that for months, I mean, this war started in February, from about April onwards until now, Russia has been exploiting Ukraine as the breadbasket and continually waging this war, just as Mr. Flurry said. And, and that is so prophetically important. It shows just the fact that this war is likely to go on. You know, Ukraine is too important to Russia. And that's what the Bible talks about, you know, about the prophesied Prince of Rosh, that prophecy in Ezekiel 38, where it talks about this one man reuniting the 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 areas that were under Russian control. And that's what we've been talking about for, for so long here at the Trumpet. And we see it happening right now. The uh, name of that article that Mr. Fleury wrote back in 2008 is called Russian Attack Signals Dangerous New Era. And he does, as as Rafaro just said there, specifically say that because Ukraine is a breadbasket and, and was during the Soviet era, that it's very likely that um, Russia would set its sights on Ukraine uh, very soon. And of course, that happened. We've also got a, a link in our show notes to Mr. Fleury's booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, which really takes a deep dive into that chapter, Ezekiel 30 that was just mentioned there. So um, please check out our show notes for today's program in order to get your free copy of that booklet and to check out that article as well. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Manyepa. For the next story, we'll take a look at Russia's ally in the war against Ukraine, Iran. Iran has been supplying all sorts of weaponry and know-how to help the Russian campaign. And Iran has also been found this week to be behind some disturbing terrorist attacks in Germany. For this, we'll go to Josh Taylor. 
Yeah, and that's what really is the highlight of this entire story. Normally, when you see terrorist attacks anywhere in the world, you think of like the Islamic State or Al Qaeda, the Taliban, those kind of groups. Uh, but with this, is especially in Europe, it's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps that's behind these terrorist attacks. And we found that out because investigators in Germany, uh, they've been experiencing a, a spate of uh of attacks on Jewish synagogues, and they came out with a local report on Thursday saying that it is the IRGC that is behind these attacks. And just to give you some examples of attacks, uh, these attacks, in just November alone, there was uh, some shots fired at a synagogue in Essen, a firebombing uh, out of another synagogue in Bochum, and an attempted arson of another synagogue in Dortmund. Again, that was all in November. And then investigators are also concerned that... Uh, this Iranian terrorist cell that's in in Germany uh, was looking to attack the president of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, uh, which, again, that, a pretty big high up figure in the German community there. So this is pretty concerning for the Ger uh, for the Germans overall. Uh, their main suspect, they're just the report just calls him Raman Y. Uh, he actually fled Germany last year, but they still believe he's the one who's kind of masterminding all these attacks with uh, um, in Germany right now. So this is a uh, a big story to find the Iranian government's fingerprints all over these appalling attacks inside of Germany. What can you tell us about the German reaction to these revelations? So it's 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 there. They're, the Germans are not too happy about this, uh, as you can well imagine. Uh, they they're calling this what it is, which is state terrorism. And if you think about it from a geopolitical standpoint, for any other nation, this would be literally an act of war that another because, again, you got to remember that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is a part of the of Iran's military. It's their kind of it's their uh, you can almost think of them like almost like the their if you take the CIA and combine it with uh, the Navy SEALs, that's be more or less what we're talking about here. This is the Iranian Iran's most elite special forces. And they're operating in Germany to conduct terrorist attacks. So the uh, investigators have been pretty uh, outspoken about how bad this is. Uh, we haven't had heard too much in terms of from the German government. Uh, we haven't had any comments from them as of yet. But there are calls within the German community to, and of course the Jewish community, to really start putting more pressure on uh, Iran for, this, for these kind of actions. So what would you say is the uh, the big picture importance of this? And is there any literature that you would suggest to listeners who would like to study it in that context? Uh, I would actually say that this is what makes this huge is that it's almost a direct fulfillment of a prophecy that we go to all the time. Daniel 11, verse 40, where it talks about a king of the south, which Mr. Fleury has identified as Iran and a king of the north, which is uh, the uh, resurrected European Union led by Germany. And it talks about how that king of the south, Iran, is going to push militarily against Germany. And that's kind of what we're seeing very directly here. So this is uh, and this is going to lead to World War Three, basically. And if our listeners want to learn more about this, I would direct them to Mr. Gerald Flurry's book, The King of the South. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Josh. We will stay on the topic of, of Germany now um, and take a look at the way the nation is shifting the focus of its military mission in Africa. To tell us about this, we'll go to Mr. Richard Palmer. 
So thus far, Germany's largest overseas military mission has been in Mali. And a lot of German military missions that we're talking about, you're looking at a few dozen people there as trainers, uh, as um, having some kind of a, a small base of operations or something like this. Mali has been dramatically different. Uh, I believe the government's limit for number of troops they're allowed to place there is well over a thousand, somewhere around 1,120. And uh, it has been for, for several years their largest uh, deployment. This week, they arranged for that to come to an end. The, they announced that they were going to begin winding this down in 2023 and then uh, to, to 2024. So you know, Mali has been a, a very significant piece of the North African puzzle for Germany. This has been the place where they kind of really invested in as being a solid base that they could then go out and deal with the rise of radical Islam throughout the region. Mali itself had a radical Islam problem. Europe kind of stepped in, tried to stabilize things, and then Germany had a vision of using this. So if they needed to get involved in Libya or Algeria or any of these other countries, they had a solid solid base of support in Mali. So why, why wind it down? Well, Mali has had a series of coups and uh, Germany doesn't get on too well with the current uh, military dictatorship that's taken over in Mali. So that's part of it. This the, the junta, they've been bringing in Russian mercenaries and relying and looking to Russia rather than to Europe. So uh, this is a big part of the reason. But they're not giving up on North Africa entirely. They are shifting over. They've already made a large a lot of arrangements with Niger, uh, Germany, and at both France and Germany are looking at moving their focus there. So uh, that that's where I think we could see things shifting. I think it's also worth noting this is a long time scale. We're talking about withdrawal not beginning until next summer, finishing until 2024. I think it's a it's quite clear it's a reluctant withdrawal from from Mali, and there's a hope that the situation could turn around, and they'll be able to stay there that uh, they've had a whole series of different governments. You could very well see Mali having another different government by the time it comes in, comes to next summer, uh, and they'd be able to turn things around. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, the Malian sort of preference for Russia over Germany and how that may have influenced this, uh, this shift a little bit. Could you talk more about that? Well, the way that Russia has really impacted what's going on in North Africa has it's not just come through through Mali it's also come through Ukraine and what we've been talking about earlier where now Europe is suddenly seeing the need to have a lot more of its military resources in the east so France for example has already begun the process of drawing down the amount of military that it has in North Africa redeploying that to focus on Russia. Germany has done that less so, but it has relied a lot upon French infrastructure. And so if the French are pulling out, they've got to at least rearrange things to uh, to deal with that. So the the fear of, of Russia, it's certainly, you know, it, Europe is feeling stretched right now. They're feeling like they can't cover all of, all of the bases all of their bases, they're having to redeploy troops. You could certainly see where you get another flare up in North Africa at the same time, or some other kind of terrorist incident from the Middle East, 
because it's always after these incidents that Europe has gone more heavily into Africa that you're going to see Europe start to have to to hold this conversation that it's been avoiding of okay we need to we need we need more resources we need more military resources we need to stop relying on the United States we need to do more militarily and we need to be able to do two things at once we need to be able to hold down the situation in North Africa and be able to uh, defend ourselves against Russia at the same time. You've already seen a lot of movement on that front since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that's done a lot to shock Europe. But the fact that they're now not really able to focus on North Africa at the same time, it's just going to take a bit of a shock there. And then you can see uh, a dramatic turn. That would be a very solid proof to Europe that they need to turn around their military resources. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of players here, a lot of moving pieces. How would you say that all of this is relevant in the context of Bible prophecy? So we have a booklet, Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran. And that booklet, to me, is just a fantastic example of uh, just the power of Bible prophecy, where really that booklet is built around just one word, in Daniel chapter 11. But that one word, when you really get detailed and specific in the Bible like that, uh, it shows us so much about about what is happening in the world today. That world, is, that word is whirlwind. Daniel 11 and verse 40 talks about a clash between a European king of the north and a radical Islamic king of the south led by Iran. And it says that this king of the north comes against Iran in a whirlwind. And that word, it implies a ferocious attack, certainly, uh, but also an element of surrounding, of whirling around, of, of, of kind of circular to it. You're surrounding Iran. And so this tells us that Germany is already thinking about, already preparing to surround Iran, and they're setting up bases in order to do that. And you see this. When Germany went into Mali, you had top German generals writing papers for academic journals, talking about how there was a ring of fire. That was the word that they used across the Middle East and North Africa. And they needed to establish bases around this ring of fire in order to be able to contain it and confront it. Uh, that was the entire thinking behind Mali. Uh, they're having some difficulties there. They're having to look at readjusting their position, setting up these different bases. But this whole story revolves around this confrontation building. And so you, know, you see this confrontation building. You just also see the power that's just in just one word in, in the Bible. And I think it's, it's a story that also shows you just the advantage of really digging in uh, and studying those scriptures because they can tell you so much about the world or you know, about our own lives, anything like that. Uh, there's just tremendous power there. The name of that booklet, once again, is Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran by Mr. Gerald Fleury, and we will include a link to that in our show notes for today's episode. So if you'd like to understand the significance of that word whirlwind and how that really just informs a great deal of what we're seeing underway in Africa right now, please check out our uh, show notes for the episode and order your free copy of that booklet. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next segment, we'll turn our attention to the United United States, where Anthony Fauci is stepping down this month from the position of White House Chief Medical Advisor, which he's held for more than 50 years. For this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. That's right. After decades in government, Dr. Fauci has decided to step down uh, and uh, and get out of office just before the 
new Republican House of Representative convenes in January. Uh, many people are expecting their, <laughs> he, he may be trying to, to get out of Dodge before the investigations begin, but, uh, just leading up to Thanksgiving, he gave his, uh, last, uh, last press conference from, a from a government position. And he had a, he had a message, Dr. Fauci did for the American people. And, uh, this is, uh, this is the quote from what he said. He said, my message and maybe my final message I'll give you from this podium is that please, for your own safety and the safety of your family, get the updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you're eligible. So he's he's definitely doubling down as he, he walks out the door on uh, the need <laughs> to get vaccinated. But um, far more significant than uh, than his final message there is uh, is and far more significant than what he said is what he refused to say. Because if you actually watch that press conference, it got to be a bit of a circus for a while where uh, one journalist from the, the Daily Caller piped up and asked a, a really interesting question that a lot of us are wondering about. They said, well, was it appropriate for you to be funding um, these organizations like EcoHealth Alliance EcoHealth Alliance that were passing money on to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, at which point which the White House press secretary intervened and, and shut that question down pretty uh, abruptly and said that they, we weren't going to spend time talking about that. And then there was another journalist from a, a less well-known paper who, uh, who stood up and actually got in a bit of an altercation with the White House press secretary saying, saying no, I think the previous journalist had a good question and uh they, they definitely told him like well you're being disrespectful and we're not going to talk about that so they're definitely going to talk about uh the need to like get vaccinated before christmas but they're not actually going to talk about well why 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 did this covid uh why did this covid virus come and and what's your role in it because there's a pretty high profile leak of emails between Dr. Fauci and his boss, Dr. Collins, from back towards the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, where they were talking about, hey, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's been using this money we sent them. Uh, they've engineered a virus. They even had like schematics of the virus that's 96% similar on a molecular level to the virus that ultimately became COVID-19. And so we know that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, they were sending that money. We've got that written in their own emails. Uh, and they knew they were using that money for gain-of-function research, uh, including <laughs> uh, engineering viruses that were almost identical to the, the one that eventually leaked out. And so the uh, there's just more and more evidence that... Uh, this COVID pandemic was from a virus that leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It was engineered by Chinese scientists uh, using money that Dr. Fauci, Dr. Collins and the American government uh, gave them. And they but they are just steadfastly refusing to answer these questions um, so that they can use the time to convince more and more people to get a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine instead. Yeah, so these uh, emails between Fauci and Collins, it sounds like some really incriminating, really damning evidence there. Um, what do you think we can expect to happen as a result of those? Yeah, I'm really curious to, to see that. Now, I think um, Dr. Fauci, he did have to give uh, some testimony on, a, like, a, before a state legislature uh, this week. 
uh, I think it was Missouri. And so now that the Republicans are taking over the House of Representatives in January, uh, there is talk about trying to, whether he retires or not, <laughs> trying to pull him back in for some hearings about that. Because, um, like I said, yeah, this COVID pandemic is one of the most <laughs> nation-transforming things that happened um, in, in any of our lifetimes or our listeners' lifetimes. And so whether through uh, incompetence or malice, if uh, the American government had any role in funding that, that's definitely something people should know about. Uh, one of the resources we'll put in the show notes today is the um, one of the appendices from our editor-in-chief's new book, America Under Attack, uh, uh, what it's titled was The Coronavirus Engineered, that goes through a lot of the evidence that we do have that the um, U.S. government was collaborating with China to engineer this virus, uh, and even presenting the theory that <laughs> it may have been done on purpose in order to uh, encourage the United States to adopt more socialist programs to give the government an excuse to send out uh, mail-in ballots that were used to steal the election and just numerous uh, myriads of other social problems uh, and then of course tying that back into uh, to prophecies in second Kings 14 about bitter affliction and that the fact that there is uh, at least on the spiritual level uh, an orchestrated campaign to tear down America uh, that used COVID as its major tool, and so this is this is definitely a huge part of this uh, of this deep state war against the United States. And the the more information the Republicans can get about uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins' role in that, the better. We will include a link in the show notes to America Under Attack, as Andrew just said there, and then we'll also leave a link to Mr. Stephen Fleury's article called Sudden Death Skyrocket as White House Pushes Untested Drugs, which goes into some of uh, this week's news on this topic. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Miller. We'll take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about a worrying weapons deal the U.S. has made with Qatar, the Chinese government's crackdown on protesters, another rough week for the royal family and a disturbing trend in American academia. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Well, the Biden administration here in the United States has just announced a massive potential arms sale to the nation of Qatar. This deal is being touted as a way to improve the security of a quote-unquote friendly country. But the facts show that that is not the reality here. To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Josh Taylor. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the Biden administration announced this on November 29th, and it's going to be about worth about a billion dollars of anti-drone defense systems. Now, just as you can imagine, uh, the reason why this is going to be anti-drone defense systems is to try and counter Iran. Iran is very famous right now for its drone attacks uh, in the Red Sea and other places. They're kind of becoming a very major power in this and are even selling those drones to Russia. So as Qatar is looking to buy ways to kind of shore up their defenses in that regard. Um, but what makes this interesting is in January, Qatar was designated by the Biden administration as what's 
called a major non-NATO ally. Now, that's just not that's not just a title. It gives them preferential treatment in terms of buying and uh, buying military equipment from the U.S., as well as being able to uh, receive training to use it. So this is them really starting to use that. But uh, what's just going back to that, having Qatar designated as a major non-NATO ally, you have to wonder, well, what have they done to deserve that? And if you look at their actions, not their words, you're wondering why Biden did this. Uh, in the statement that they put out for this sale, as you said, they were specifically uh, one of the reasons they were making the sale is to support a friendly qu- country. But if you look at the details, apart from Iran, Qatar is arguably one of the greatest sponsors of terrorism in the world. Just to give a quick couple examples, um, they do a, they fund a lot of terrorism through uh, one of their major charities called the Qatar Charity. Uh, they've sheltered major terrorist leaders, including the man who would go on to mastermind the 9-11 attacks. They've allowed their state-run government television broadcaster to be used as a mouthpiece for uh, many different uh, terrorist organizations. And they continue to be the biggest supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood in the world. And this is really just scratching the surface on the veritable, veritable mountain of evidence exposing their duplicity in this regard. Yeah, this sounds like a really unwise decision on the part of the Biden administration. What's in it for them? Why are they why are they making this deal? Well, if you look underneath the surface uh, in the United States, back at home here, the the United States is kind of going through a, a bit of an energy crisis right now. And you look at, you know, gas prices at the pump. Anyone can see that. And they're just they remain high. And this is a concern that the Biden administration has. Uh, and, but instead of encouraging pumping here at home they're looking to buy gas from elsewhere right now i i think we up on the website we have an article talking about how they've given in a permit to chevron to pump in venezuela now with qatar they are the world's number one uh supplier of liquid natural gas so as you can imagine if biden can do anything to uh cozy up to qatar to butter them up so to speak they're going to take that opportunity. And that's what I think this uh, big thing that motivates that. But there's an even deeper reason for this. Um, and it comes down to what Mr. Gerald Flory has talked about. Um, I would in one of his articles, a landmark article back in October 2021 uh, c- called This Isn't Incompetence, This Is Treason. Now, this is t- the article was written shortly after the uh, Afghanistan debacle. But what Mr. Flurry shows and what he explains is that all of these kind of pro uh, terrorism, pro radical Islam uh, policies that you see from the Biden administration right now, you know, supporting and trying to get a, a deal with Iran, you know, selling now arms to a sponsor of terrorism, uh, supporting the Palestinian Palestinians against uh, Israel, basically all of these de- really anti-West foreign policies. They're a continuation of what we saw under Barack Obama. Uh, with Barack Obama, he you know he helped oust uh, an American sorry, uh, American ally, Hosni Mubarak. He tried to help cover up that disastrous uh, attack on the Libyan outpost that killed a U.S. ambassador and several soldiers. And then famously, he was the one who pushed through and gave Iran a lifeline in terms of the Iran nuclear deal. All of that was under Barack Obama, and we're seeing that now continued with Joe Biden. 
Josh has written an article. It's up on thetrumpet.com right now. It's called A Sponsor of Terrorism, America's New Close Friend. We've included a link to that in today's episode show notes. And we've also left a link there to Mr. Flurry's article that he just mentioned there called This Isn't Incompetence, This Is Treason. That article goes into detail about the way the Obama administration really just empowered Islamic extremism. So please check out our show notes if you'd like to see those articles. And thanks very much for that, Mr. Taylor. We'll turn our attention now to China, where the government has been facing its worst protests since those that led up to the Tiananmen Square massacre back in 1989. To tell us about this, we'll turn it back over to Mr. Manyapa. Yes, uh, last week uh, there were some protests that broke out across China, rather unprecedented protests over the government's COVID measures. And uh, it, it, there have been reports all over the place about how unique this has been and, and, and what this could mean for President Xi Jinping and what it could mean for the future of China. Well, in the days since those protests, the government has uh, used a heavy police presence to quash the protests, um, keep them off the street. Uh, I think around yesterday, the streets were pretty much empty. A lot of planned protests got canceled. Uh, the Chinese government certainly like took control of the situation. But how it's happened has been interesting because uh, as, as that happened, probably just shortly after the government came out and said, we're relaxing COVID measures. Uh, everybody's free to, to move around more. They were saying that if you've tested positive, you can isolate at home uh, instead of a, at a government quarantine center. Um, they said that they canceled uh, compulsory citywide testing. And they said that they would shorten quarantines in a lot of other places. So if you look at it on the surface, it kind of looks like the protesters got what they wanted. And there's lots of reports uh, from the West, you know, just coming out and saying, you know, the, is, is, are things going to change? Has Xi Jinping overplayed his hand? But in reality, it's not that simple. This is China that we're talking about here. And what's actually happened is that throughout all of this, China has significantly expanded its state surveillance apparatus. Uh, its internet watchdog, the, the CCP's instructed tech companies to expand the censorship of people as, as they were trying to stop the protests from happening. It told them to curb access to virtual private networks that allowed protesters to circumvent some blocks that the uh, CCP has put on the internet there. It told the owner of uh, the short video apps, TikTok and uh, Douyin, which is the uh, Chinese equivalent of TikTok, to add more staff to their uh, to their companies in order to censor the internet even better it told them to pay more attention to content related to protests uh, particularly information that was being shared at universities all of these things have been happening since and they're measures that are likely to stay in place long term beyond these uh these protests that have been happening just since the weekend so many videos of the protests have, have been taken down so many uh posts that have anything related to that um we've also heard about um apple even helping with uh, uh limiting the amount of airdrop uh the amount of use that the airdrop feature can be used on iphones there in china but you can see here, you know, China, it, it makes it seem as though the protesters have won. But in fact, they've actually done a lot more to ensure that 
uh, the the government has even more power to quell and stop any protests like this from happening. And to uh, and to top it all off, the measures that they're saying they've relaxed for COVID actually haven't really been relaxed. People in China are saying we still can't go anywhere. When China says that it's relaxed measures, it's it's just a situation where. People are still locked in the buildings. Those who aren't from a particular district are allowed to drive through that district. The roads are open. They can travel. But the people who belong to a particular district that is being forced to be quarantined, they can't go anywhere. It's still pretty much the same thing, but it only makes it look like there's been a difference. Yes, I think it's easy for for us in the West to really underestimate just how soul-crushing all of the lockdowns in China have been. You know, it's been going on for three years now. And uh, and it's also, I think, it, it's been happening quite often that we don't really understand just the huge risk that these people took by protesting. You know, this, this mm-hmm. is a police state. It's a surveillance state. It's a place where cameras are nearly ubiquitous in these cities, and they're integrated with facial recognition software. Right. So these people would have known that they were going out and they would almost certainly be caught. And of course, they know also that China has this brutal, uh, I, I guess you could call it a criminal justice system, but there's very little justice. And if you're arrested, that may be you know, your, right. your last experience with any sort of freedom. So you have to admire them for going out there despite all of that. Um, but a lot of people are saying that uh, this went beyond just calling for an end to the lockdown measures. And that it was actually, you know, these are these are calls for the government to be replaced. How, how do you feel about those sorts of calls? Should we expect that kind of uh, momentum to build? Well, a lot of people certainly do feel that way. I mean, you're right. You have to feel for the Chinese people there. A lot of the protesters were chanting, we don't want an emperor. You know, they they, they a lot of them were calling for a, a change to the government. And, you know, there there surely are some some people there. Um, who who probably are fine with the government, but a lot of people, especially at universities, want a regime change. And that's probably why you have a lot of Western media backing these protests and really playing them up. Um, but I think it is severely and dangerously underestimating what a <laughs> what an authoritarian regime looks like. I mean, I, I, I grew up in such a place, you know, where it's like you can hope, you can dream, you can say what you want. But the reality is that once those people have that kind of power, they're not going to let it go. And China has gone through um, too much now. Like Xi Jinping has done too much to amass power for himself to go back now. Uh, we, we've been speaking about it for quite a long time about the prophecy about the kings of the East. And we talk a lot about um, the one in Russia, the, the the prophesied prince of Russia, as we spoke about earlier. But there is one in China as well. Mr. Gerald Flurry has often spoken about that secondary um, position that China has in that alliance. And that's where Xi Jinping comes into the picture. And I'd just like to recommend for all our readers to read an article in the latest trumpet uh, called A 21st Century Emperor that our very own Mr. Jacques wrote. And it really does show exactly how far Xi Jinping has gone to amass power for himself and how all these calls for regime change, whether or not they're sincere, probably won't amount to any change at all. 
We really appreciate that, Mr. Manyepa. For the next story, we'll take a look at the United Kingdom, where it has been another very difficult week for the royal family. For this, we'll go back to Mr. Palmer. Yes, once again, we've had uh, a series of pieces of bad news and maybe some, uh, well, certainly some poor decision-making. Uh, just uh, very recently, I think it was Wednesday, Prince William and uh, and the Duchess of Cambridge, his wife, they took a, a diplomatic visit to Boston and uh, they weren't really received particularly well. At one point, uh, they were put up on the big screen and the crowd started booing chanting USA, USA. The image was quickly taken off. And a big part of the reason why comes in something that happened not coincidentally at the same time where Netflix released the trailer for a new documentary uh, titled Harry and Meghan about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I think it's uh, no coincidence that former Prince Harry, I guess you could say, chose to release this trailer on the same day that his brother is making this uh, big tour in the United States, ensuring that that tour gets overshadowed. I think it it shows that whatever truce there may have been between the brothers after the royal family, after the Queen's death and the funeral there, does seem like it's over. And uh, he and his wife are back to all out attacking on the royal family. Uh, the video says, or in the trailer, Harry says, no one sees what happens behind closed doors uh, and talks about how he had to do everything he could to protect his family. So it certainly looks like we're going to get another broadside from the Duke of Sussex on the rest of his family. But what I think was the biggest news this week came also on Wednesday regarding a uh, a visit to Buckingham Palace. And... You know, I was driving, just driving around in the UK, it was really weird to be getting every few minutes on the news updates about this particular situation. And so here's the scandal. There was a, a charity organizer, Nungozi Fulani. Uh, she visited Buckingham Palace and one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting, who's been kept on by King Charles, asked her where she was from. That's it. The audacity. I know that's uh, that's the end. Like she went back from that and she uh, she tweeted that she had been violated, uh, that she was stunned into temporary silence. She said, I think it's essential to acknowledge that trauma has occurred and being invited and then insulted. It has caused much damage. And so this story does make me angry. This it was Lady yeah. Susan Hussey who who reportedly asked where she was from, and again, and all we have in public is this one woman Ngozi Fulani's side of the story, uh, hmm. and she does say that she was quite insistent about well, where are you from, and and um, you know maybe that is a little undiplomatic for a, a lady in waiting, somebody who has got a lot of experience of kind of tactfully smoothing these kind of conversations. But here, she, Lady Susan Hussey, she served the Queen for over 60 years, and it was an unpaid role. So she gave up 60 years of her life. She's an 83-year-old woman uh, and uh, gave up all of that to, to serve the monarchy, to serve this institution. And she was out of her job within hours. Now, she resigned, but it certainly looks like Buckingham Palace did not stick up for her. Prince William came out and said, well, yes, it's right that she goes. 
I mean, the, the palace did nothing to protect her. Um, she was described as, as perhaps Queen Elizabeth's closest companion. You know, she was there sitting next to, next to Queen Elizabeth II in the Bentley as it followed her husband's hearse during his funeral. Someone you know, very close to the queen. And then she was just booted out in, in an afternoon. So you know, I think this illustrates the attack of uh, attacks on the royal family. I think it shows a lot of the weakness, not just in the royal family, um, but it just in leadership in general, especially British leadership, but in a, a lot of a lot of leadership where there is just a lack of courage today. No one is willing to stand up to the mob for any reason. And if it's a choice between standing up to the mob and saying, well, hang on a minute. OK, we've got one side of the story. And this woman, uh, Ngozi, Ngozi Fulani, you know, she previously said that King Charles and his wife, she accused them of domestic violence against Meghan Markle. So she's somebody with a, an agenda. She's someone who's tried to attack the royal family before. And she is somebody who also dresses very flamboyantly in kind of African dress. You see pictures of her and you're like, well, of course she asked where she was from. She looks like she's kind of proudly wearing um, the uh, her kind of African heritage. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you would a certain you'd see that and think, well, OK, yeah, she seems to be proud of where she's from. I'll ask her where she's from. Uh, so it, it's just very sad to see a loyal servant of the crown hounded out like that. Yes. Yeah, it is just a, a very sobering sign, I think, of just kind of the tightening embrace of victimhood culture that we're seeing more and more, and also just of the dearth of courage in leadership, as you said there. Uh, before we let you go here, Mr. Palmer, could you put this in the context of Bible prophecy and let the listeners know what they could uh, read in order to study into that? So in our November-December issue of The Trumpet magazine, we have an article, The Queen's Funeral Shows the Power of the Throne. And I think this this article puts all of these stories in perspective. You know, th what we've seen this week is, I think, it shows us both the decline of the royal family, that with the death of the queen, it seems like there is some character that has gone. I mean, we can't know at this point how the queen would have responded in exactly this situation, but you would have expected there would be a bit more fortitude and and loyalty shown where the queen were if, if she were the one in charge. So I think you see you see what the royal family has lost with her dying. You see the decline of the royal family. But you also see how this institution is really under attack. And uh, I think we, we, we focused a lot on on this decline. And I think with the Queen's death, there was a lot of goodwill towards the royal family. I think you had a pause in some of these attacks uh, for a month or two. And I think perhaps this week shows us that the pause is over. Uh, that uh, it's open season again. You know, Meghan Markle's video is just going to be, go around. And, and she she really begun this whole idea of the royal family is racist. That started with her. It kind of came from nowhere. A lot of other people have taken it up since then, including this, this woman. Uh, and I think we're just going to see that accelerate. But I'll just quote from what the, this article states. And we've seen this proven true in the events of this week. And I think we're going to see this. Well, I know we're going to see this proven true over the following months. Uh, this article says, with the Queen's death, Britain's connection with the throne of David is even weaker. You know, that's why we talk about this on this show, that that the Bible says that David would have a throne. There would always be somebody ruling on that throne. Uh, you can look at the details, and, and Jesus Christ is going to sit on that throne. But Je you know, Jesus Christ isn't—there has to be someone still there now. He's not sitting on, on a throne ruling over the earth 
right now. So this is why we watch this. Um, but uh, in that article, Mr. Flurry quotes something he said a few years ago where he said that uh, Britain is going down rapidly. And he said, I believe now that the Queen has died, this is in the article, Britain's demise will accelerate. We're about to see a very sad ending for that throne. And, and this article will introduce you to more of the Bible prophecy around that throne. Also to show you there's a beautiful, there's, there's just so many inspiring prophecies that this talks about. You know, this throne is a symbol of of just God wanting to have a relationship with men and work with work with all of mankind and bring all of mankind into his kingdom. You know, kingdom, there's a king in, in the name there. So there's a wonderful vision in that uh, and a, a just a, a great depth of understanding of what is happening in, in, in Britain and in all of our societies. That article is The Queen's Funeral Shows the Power of the Throne. Okay, well, we really appreciate you bringing us up to speed on that, Mr. Palmer. For our final story of the show today, we'll discuss a disturbing imbalance in the upper echelons of American academia. To tell us about this, we'll go back to Mr. Miller. Yeah, contemporary American university life is increasingly starting to resemble uh, a one-party regime like Red China or the Soviet Union. There was a, a fascinating new survey uh, published this week by the College Fix that examined uh, seven universities uh, in uh, Ohio, Nebraska, North Carolina, Georgia, Oklahoma, and Alaska and found that half the departments in all those universities did not employ a single Republican professor. There were zero Republicans across 33 departments in seven universities. Uh, it actually uh, broke down uh, the numbers a little bit. That if you look at the universities in total, 92% uh, of the professors were Democrats and only 8% were Republicans. So the, the Democrats outnumbered the Republicans 11 to 1. Uh, wow. And you have and you have to remember that these are, with the exception of New York, um, all these states are conservative states. So th these statistics are probably way worse <laughs> if you were to look at like Washington or California or some of the liberal states. So really just highlighting the fact that the uh, American people may be divided 50-50 between uh, liberals and conservatives. Congress may be divided 50-50 between liberals and conservatives. The Supreme Court may be divided 50-50 between liberals and conservatives. But when you look at academia, it's definitely 90-10, even in the red states. And in the blue states, it's probably closer to 100-0. Uh, the Democrats are in control. Uh, it's pretty, yeah, it's really fascinating, especially um, the timing of it. it came when uh, with another story related this week where there's a uh, a chemist one of who fled the Soviet Union not long after the Berlin Wall collapsed and uh, and she's one of the few <laughs> one of the very few conservatives working uh, at the University of California now where she wrote an essay uh, for the heterodox stem basically lamenting the atmosphere of ideological control, omniscience of ideology, policing of speech and thought, and suppression of dissent at American universities. And outright said that like her, her job at the University of California now increasingly reminds her uh, of her youth growing up in the Soviet Union. Uh, and then she, she has a 
yeah, pretty long essay just highlighting just all the uh, all the thought police at American universities that uh yeah are really like something right out of a uh, out of East Germany, and you can you can see that essay. It's titled uh, the essay itself is titled From Russia with Love, Science and Ideology Then and Now. Uh, there's a link to it um, that will be up uh, on the Trumpet website soon uh, in an article titled Survey Finds Zero Republican Professors in 33 Departments at Seven American Universities. Yeah, so even though most of these states that were in the study are Republican-leaning, as you said, their universities are just totally stacked with leftists. And, you know, I guess that in and of itself is not a huge surprise, given what we know about much of higher education. But I think the degree to which it's happening is higher than most of us would have thought with Democrats. Was it, did you say 11 to 1 that they outnumber the Republicans? Yeah, 11 to 1 in those seven states. Just a really heavy imbalance there. So, um, Andrew, you've written an article all about this survey, and you make an interesting point in there about another former Soviet citizen uh, who also defected, Yuri Bezos. Could you talk a little bit about what he said on this topic? Yeah, I've quoted Yuri Bezmenov quite a bit. He was a, a KGB spy stationed in India, working like for the communist subversion of India back in the 70s and uh, and early 80s. Uh, and then he eventually defected to Canada, made his way to the United States and gave a series of lectures on uh, the threat the Soviet Union posed to America. But, uh, but in his estimation, he had two statistics that just shocked me. One, as he said in the 80s, he said he estimated that 5% of liberals in America were Soviet agents working for the downfall of the country, and the other 95% were well-meaning but useful idiots. Um, he also said that like 80, uh, about 15% of the money the KGB spends is on, you know, like James Bond style, blowing up bridge, getting nuclear blueprints, that type of stuff that they make all the movies about. Uh, but then 85% was forged just basically ideologically brainwashing nations. Mm. Uh, and so he really made the, the point that in uh, the KGB was spending most of its budget, like sending communist professors uh, and teachers and, and and other educators to America to like train the next generation in socialist thought, and that is uh, that is the beginning of how um, how the American universities started to get this this liberal imbalance because uh, all these all these colleges all these liberal colleges uh, I mean they, they they were founded. 400 years ago as minister colleges by by puritan english settlers and were were, were actually quite they, they were basically bible schools for generations uh until more recently where now they've uh they were they were infiltrated by um communist agents and then with working with american sympathizers uh and now that process has continued until you've basically uh, american academia is a, a fifth column within the united states working for the overthrow of the country but the late herbert w armstrong warned about this for years that that 
communism was really a very evil tool to strip America of its blessings. And he uh, he focused primarily when he talked about that on um, a scripture in Hosea 7 verses 8 and 9 that talks about the modern day descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh being uh, mixed with foreigners and those foreigners sapping, uh, sapping away their strength unknown to them. And so obviously just a little bit of thought. If you're mixed with foreigners, you're also mixed with the ideology of foreigners. So this uh, and this ideology that German and Russian and Chinese professors have introduced to America called communism has gone native now, but it did originate with foreign professors and, uh, and is really just a striking fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, thanks very much for that, Andrew. We are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Rafaro Manyepa, Josh Taylor, and Mr. Richard Palmer. And thanks very much to Parker Campbell for audio engineering. And we'll leave you today with some Aristotelian wisdom. He said, education is an ornament in prosperity and a refuge in adversity. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.